Good morning again. Got to say that a few times. So as I was uh, praying about uh, looking for a good illustration for the sermon this weekend, a question popped into my mind. How does an anchor work? You may think it's odd that a question popped into my mind. How does an anchor work? Maybe you know how an anchor works. I had made assumptions. Uh, I had assumed, oh, I don't know, maybe the anchor's heavy enough to hold the boat, but that's silly because the boat is way heavier than the anchor. Well, maybe the anchor digs into the floor of the ocean and holds it in place, but it turns out while that might work for smaller craft, it certainly doesn't work for very large ships. To be certain, uh, it can work for smaller boats, but not for large ships. They're way too big. It turns out that physics matters. And now I'm speaking way out of my depth. (laughs) Physics matters when it comes to large ships. It's not the anchor that does the trick. It's the chain connected to the anchor. The purpose of the anchor is to get the chain to lie on the ocean floor. Then, as the boat moves a little distance away from the anchor, the chain begins to have more and more of it comes out and lays on the ocean floor. And the weight of the chain is what matters. The, The more chain that is laid down on the seabed, the more weight it exerts on the ship, and that is what keeps the ship in position. If strong winds come, this is where the physics come in that I don't understand, (laughs) the boat begins to drift and the chain rises up and begins to stretch and slowly slows the ship down to a stop. As it does, it absorbs the tension caused by the winds and does its thing. The chain absorbs the energy and keeps the boat stable in rough waters. The storms can still do damage, of course. They can even cause the anchor to become dislodged from the bottom. But in principle, there is a stability that enables the boat to better weather those storms and to maintain its position. The anchor, in fact, is, was an early uh, symbol of hope within Christianity. The hope we have in Christ and in where God is taking all things And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the writer speaks of Christ, our forerunner, and the hope that we have in him, saying, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. As we said last week, scholars have identified three main challenges facing the church in Philippi, disunity, legalism, and persecution. These are the storms the church in Philippi was dealing with, and they needed an anchor. The Philippian Christians were struggling with fear and anxiety, perhaps even doubt. These are the things Paul has in mind as he writes his letter to them. We said last week that we live in liminal space. We live in liminal space. That is the space between things, between rooms, between jobs, between phases in life, points of uncertainty, relationships, all sorts of things. For Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, he knows that we all live in liminal space, liminal space being threshold, the threshold between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. What Peter referred to in Acts 3.21 as the restoration of all things, what the Apostle Paul refers to in Colossians 1.20 as that time when God in Christ will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And in between those two points, we run. We run. We run with faith, we run with resurrection power and joy and with determination to finish the race well. We run with the knowledge that God is at work in us and in the world and one day he will bring all of it to completion. 
we run with the knowledge that God, according to his great power that is at work within us, is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. So after the Apostle Paul has given us a picture of where things are headed and exhorted us to run this race of faith well, to press on to reach the goal and win the prize in Philippians chapter 3, he shifts gears in chapter 4. Last week in chapter 3, we named three strategies that we saw to help us press on, to help us pursue the prize of fully knowing Christ as we are fully known by Christ. Those were, we learn to love our neighbors and our enemies. We engage in the things, the practices, the exercises, the experiences that make for spiritual growth in each of us. We do all of this in community with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, we had a very uh, lousy, slow internet speed last Sunday during uh, the service. It made the stream and the video that came out of it unwatchable. Uh, so I re-recorded last week's sermon, and that, uh, and that video sits on our website, ecclife.net, uh, on the sermon page underneath the worship uh, tab. It is both, you have both the audio and the video there. So if you missed it and would like to hear it, that's where it is. In Philippians 4, 4 and following, Paul has more strategy for us. He starts dropping what appear to be short, quick, staccato phrases that have almost nothing to do with each other, but they do. So I'm going to read the first part of this one more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I just want to note here at the start of this sermon that I am discovering something uh, in, in, in Philippians 4 that I had never seen before. I'm not doing it on my own. I was pointed uh, to it by M. Robert Mulholland Jr., whom I've quoted before. Robert Mulholland was a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary before his passing in 2015, so he's no slouch when it comes to helping us understand the New Testament. And in his book, Invitation to a Journey, a Roadmap for Spiritual Formation, Mulholland does something entirely new with this passage. And I'm always skeptical when somebody does something entirely new with a passage. But as I've prayed and as I've continued to dig into this, I've come to the conclusion that he's spot on. Paul begins this brief section with something he said a few times already in this letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now remember, Paul is in prison. Paul is suffering. Paul is not even sure in chapter 1 if he's going to live or die. Paul is suffering as are the people to whom he is writing. Rejoice? What do you mean rejoice, Paul? You, you are paying attention here. You know what's going on. Why would you say rejoice? And Paul says, glad you asked, just like I said, I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. And he must mean it. The words joy and rejoice appear in Paul's letter to the Philippians more than any other letter that Paul wrote, and it is sometimes referred to as the epistle of joy. But Paul is in prison. His future is, his very life is in doubt. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. My guess is that Paul repeats the commandment here because he knows we may question it. In fact, choosing to rejoice over and over amid hardship and suffering and pain is exactly what it will take. The author of the book of James agrees. James 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Really? Because you know that 
the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And we know from the passage a few weeks ago, Romans 5, 1 through 5, that perseverance produces character and character produces hope. It is important for us to learn to rejoice in the Lord always because rejoicing is not only something we do when God is good to us, it is something we do as a part of our own spiritual transformation. Rejoicing is not only something we do because God has been good to us, it is something we do as a part of our own spiritual transformation. Even in our suffering, rejoicing in the Lord transforms us and more and more forms Christ in us. This does not mean that we deny our pain or suffering. It does not mean that we become the kind of people, we've all known them, who go around all the time saying, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, everything's great. It is not what this means. It means we find a way to rejoice in the midst of our pain. We don't deny it. We don't deny it. We find a way to tap into that deep inner joy that is a part of the life of every person who has come to know Christ. We let it determine the way we live our lives, the way we respond to pain and suffering. Mulholland calls this a a radical alternative to our anxious, tense, stress-filled, and destructive existence. And as we've seen, Paul had every reason to be anxious and stress-filled, right? And then just in case we're in doubt, I want to take you over to uh, Paul's uh, writing over in 1 Corinthians 4, 11-13, where he lists some of the things he suffered. To this very hour, he says, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, when we are cursed, we bless, when we are persecuted, we endure it, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Paul is not denying that life is hard. He's not denying that he has a reason to complain. He's simply choosing not to do it and to do something else, something better instead. He's living life differently than the world might think, than we might think he would live. But how is Paul able to choose this radical alternative? He taps into a deeper reality, which is found in the next verse of Philippians 4. We're going to read Four and five together several times here. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now we are, again, tempted, I think, to see this just as a a succession of unrelated short phrases. But Mulholland and others think differently. How can we rejoice in the Lord always? By tapping into this gentleness Paul speaks of. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought the word gentleness in the NIV is a strange word there. Paul has just said twice, rejoice in the Lord always. Why wouldn't he say, let your joy be evident to all? I'm also convinced that the word gentleness is not the best word. In fact, other translations render this word as reasonableness, moderation, consideration, and forbearance. Mulholland goes with the word forbearance because it is the word that is translated in the, revised, the old Revised Standard Version of the Bible. I'm going to stay with it because it's not a word we use very often. And I think its strangeness, its, strangeness, its unfamiliarity will maybe enable us to hear it differently. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the Greek word translated as forbearance refers to the general conception or order of life. To a general conception or order of life. It is the way of being commonly used in Greek literature and in, uh, in the Bible 
uh, used of uh, speaking of God or the gods or kings. For us who have come to know God in Christ, for us who have the Holy Spirit living within us, empowering us, we have a way of being. We have a deep down order to life by which we need to choose to live. A reality in our inner beings that is then fleshed out and overflows into our relationships, into our world. This way of life is different than the way others live, or should be. So we must let this order, this way of life, become evident to everyone. Mulholland writes, Paul is indicating that Christ's disciples live their lives within a particular order of being. One whose structures of character and dynamics of being transcend destructive events. This is not an escapist transcendence. This is the transcendence of a deeper order that embraces our tenuous and fragile world order and incorporates its disruption, even its destruction, into eternal wholeness. It is the deeper order revealed in the incarnation, in case you don't know what that means, the incarnation is when the pre-existent Christ took on flesh and blood and bone and became a human being. It is the deeper order revealed in the incarnation, an order that accepts crucifixion and transforms its death into eternal life. We've already seen this at work. And it is the way God works in the world. He enables us to live in such a way that we can rejoice. If we tap into this transcendent, deeper order, even in the midst of suffering and anxiety, and this deeper order teaches us that God is able to take the absolute worst that the world will throw at us. Disruption, destruction, suffering, persecution, even death, and transform it into something glorious. Once again, quoting from Blaise Pascal from last week's passage, somewhere... Something incredible is waiting to be known. This is where the anchor and the chain come back into play. The anchor is our hope in Christ, and the chain is this transcendent, deeper order we can tap into. It will absorb the energy of the winds and the storms that threaten to throw us off course. It will enable us to remain calm to release our anxiety to God and to press on. If you think about it, you've known people like this who go through difficult times, but somehow their faith not just sustains them, but transforms them. They're able to deal with things better than we think they should be able to deal with them. These two verses, four and five, you'll be happy to know, are as far as we're going today. I have a couple more things to say about them. But as far as we're going today, next week we're going to dive further down into verses 4 through 9. And we're going to discover next week more about what this chain is made of. What this order is made of. We're going to gain some tools to live in a way that this forbearance, this deeper order, will be made evident to us and to all who know us. And as we, and as we do that, we press on toward the goal to win the price for which Christ Jesus has called us heavenward. And that gives us joy. That gives us peace. That empowers us to move forward with grace and gentleness and ease and confidence and peace, even while suffering. But there's more. Not only do we have this deeper order, we have the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. 
The Lord is near. I used to think that this was primarily about the second coming. You know, I know it's bad. Hang on. Jesus will be back soon. And while that certainly may be a part of what's going on, I think what Paul is really saying here, Christ is right here. The Lord is right here. He is closer than the air you breathe. The word translated near is more literally at hand. It comes from a verb. You love this. It means to squeeze or throttle. Catch the connection? Christ is so near, you can reach out and take hold of him. He's right there. We aren't doing any of this alone or on our own. The Lord is at hand. Christ is within reach. The late Henry Nouwen, a Dutch priest and writer, once described what we're talking about as interior stability. Interior stability. Because Christ is at hand, because we can tap into this deeper order, we can live our lives with this interior stability. And I think that interior stability is the same thing that Mulholland means when he refers to the transcendence of a deeper order. And when I consider these things, friends, as I read this, as I investigated this, as I prayed through this, when I consider these things, something resounds deep in my soul. And I realize that this is one of the gifts that God has been giving me for the past few months. And it is a gift that is available to us all. It is available to you. And I want you to have it. I want us to live by it. Empowered by it. Tapped into it. Sent into the world to be present with our neighbors. They need it and we need it too. In fact, this is the primary way we become agents of change and redemption in the world. You try to go out and become an agent of change and redemption in the world, and you're not tapped into this, it's going to be hard. I'm not saying you can't do anything, but it's going to be a lot easier if you can tap into this interior stability, this order. As preparation for our prayer and planning retreat, a couple of weeks ago, pastors and directors took part in the Strengths Finder assessment. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's an assessment that seeks to help you identify at least five of the strengths that you would bring to contribute to any team you work with and that sort of thing. And when I was sharing my strengths with some of the staff, I read them out loud and I I got to one of the strengths in particular that caused an unexpected reaction. Someone laughed. (laughs) You may laugh too. I said that one of my strengths was positivity. And I'm not going to tell you who who laughed because I don't want to embarrass Kristen Mueller. (laughs) And you know what? I understand why she would laugh. I get it. I would have laughed at it too. Because that's not who I've been for many years. I've been negative, defensive, angry, cynical, not anymore if you give me a chance I think you'll find me more positive more hopeful more enthusiastic why because by the grace of God I have been able to tap into this interior stability I ain't saying I've always got it tapped in I'm saying that I'm able to 
So if you want to poke me later and see if you get a response, <clears throat> today you won't. But it could happen. I'm saying I know where to go. And we're going to talk about that in the coming week or two. By the grace of God, I've been able to tap into this interior stability, this transcendence of a deeper order, this forbearance that Paul instructs that we are to make evident to everyone, even in the midst of difficulty and suffering. And I want more of it, and I want you to have it too. And we'll have more practical steps next week. Right now, what I want, the, the only practical thing I want right now is for you to see it, to sense it, to begin to grasp it, and to want it. That's all I want. If we look carefully in the pages of our Bible, we will find people who exhibit this interior stability, who are tapped into this deeper order. What does it look like? It looks like Abraham. Called by God to leave his family, to leave his culture, to leave his land, and to go to a land he didn't even know where he was going, a land that God would show him. It looks like Ruth, a foreigner, a widow, who comes to live among God's people and has to trust that God is at work through the kindness of strangers and family to meet her needs. And by the end of the book, she becomes an ancestor to Jesus Christ. It looks like Hannah. Hannah, who is childless, tormented by her rival, <clears throat> mocked by the priest when she goes to the place of prayer and asks God for a son and promises to dedicate him to the Lord for his entire life. It looks like Elijah. Elijah, who sets up or challenges the, the God of the prophets of Baal to a, to a duel of sacrifices. They build their sacrifices, and they're cutting themselves and screaming and crying out in desperation that Baal will send forth fire and consume it, while Elijah is calm and cool and confident, and I might say funny, when he just keeps pouring water onto the sacrifice, knowing that God will come through. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will come through and will consume all of it. It looks like Esther. Esther, who is plucked from obscurity to become queen in a foreign land. When her people, the Jews, are being persecuted, her family is being threatened, she comes to this place of honor for such a time as this. It looks like Job. Job, a man who is righteous and blameless, a man who fears God and shuns evil, although he is allowed to be tested by Satan, and in his testing he loses all he had. All he had. And yet, in the midst of his suffering, he says of God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I will put my hope in him. It looks like Daniel. Placed in a place of serving a foreign king. Again, in exile. Bullied for his devotion to God and his faithfulness. Tricked almost into disobeying the king. But Daniel chooses to remain faithful 
and to face the persecution rather than choose unfaithfulness and disobedience. It looks like Mary. A young Jewish girl in poverty who is asked, tasked with the mission of carrying and giving birth to and raising the Christ child. Even though by doing so she risks her reputation, she risks misunderstanding, she may risk her marriage to Joseph, she may even risk her life. And yet, when the angel brings this announcement to her, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said. It looks like Jesus, who scorned the shame and the pain of the cross and the suffering, all for the joy that was set before him, the joy of redemption and what his death and resurrection would accomplish. It looks like the Apostle Paul. In chains, in prison, not sure if he's going to live or die. Telling people, no matter the suffering, you rejoice in the Lord, you rejoice in the Lord always. And continuing to care for the churches that he oversees. And it looks like any of us could look. If we will choose, by the grace of God, not to stand in the way of sinners, nor to sit in the seat of mockers, but rather to choose to delight in the law of the Lord, the word of God. To meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. We do that, and we will become like a tree planted by streams of water. A tree rooted in this interior stability, this deep inner order. A tree that bears its fruit in season. A tree whose leaf does not wither. Everything that we do prospers. Can you see it? Can you sense it? Do you want it? Will you pray for it? I hope so. Would you join me as I pray and close us? Just allow for a moment of silence and then I will close us in prayer. God, I can talk all day till I'm blue in the face. That doesn't mean anyone's going to understand what I say. That is about you. <clears throat> doesn't mean anybody, even if they do understand, is going to want what I'm talking about. That is still your doing. So I pray, oh God, for the people in the sound of my voice. Pray for all of them right now. And in the days to come, that they would hunger for this. Hunger for this way of life in which they can tap into a deeper order and find a way to rejoice in you regardless of what's happening. That their own forbearance would be made evident to all who know them. I pray, oh God, they would hunger and thirst for it, that they would cry out for it. They would trust you to meet them there. God, send your spirit into the hearts and minds of us, your people. 
that we would be to discover the possibilities and what you have in store for us. And may we find our hope, Lord God, in you and in you alone. And may you be glorified by all that we do and say in response to this in Jesus' name.